And welcome to the Beer Vana Podcast. Hi, Jeff. Hey, Patrick. Man, they see you've glided in there like yeah. you know, that was sort of mellow. I'm trying to, yeah. So I'm trying to I'm trying to channel the the spirit of the of the subject of the podcast. So. Ah, all right. <laughs> uh, Form we, and function. I like it. Uh, with me is Jeff Allworth. I'm going to mix this up. With me is Jeff Allworth. Hi, Jeff. Hi, Patrick. With me is Patrick Emerson. And you have written books including The Widmer Way and The Beer Bible, Secrets of Master Brewers, and more. And more. And more. And you are a professor of economics at Portland uh, Portland State, Oregon State University. Sorry, go Beavs. I kind of wish I was in Portland State, and that way I wouldn't have to commute so much. But uh, yeah, go Beavs, damn it. <laughs> no Portland State. <laughs> I know. It's terrible. It's terrible. Uh, across from us, as always, is Will. Romy, hi, Will. <laughs> he says go Beavers. He says go Beavers. Uh, so uh, we join you. Will's here because uh, we are at X-Ray FM Studios in North Portland. Yeah, North Portland. I think I said Northeast like weeks and weeks and weeks, and this first time you corrected me was last week. So No, I've, I would never let you got away with that in the past. Yeah, if I read your script, it would say North Portland in front of me. Yes, it would. And it does. And exactly. it does. Exactly. I'd, I'd, I'd read, I'd read, read through there. Sorry. <laughs> that was dead air. is me reading. <laughs> We're at the Falcon Arcs building where uh, X-Ray FM is housed. Uh, so thanks for X-Ray for fixing everything bad about the pod. And we're here in the middle of summer, sweltering, probably. Oh, yeah. It's hot outside. Man. Super hot. We're dripping with sweat. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, these are actually pre-recorded, so we're doing our best to, to put you in the mood. That's right. But this is this uh, the third in a series of double, triple, extra special <laughs> uh, podcasts on... Uh, They're the getting bend, specialer and specialer. The Bend Beer Scene. Uh, these are interviews with uh, seminal key and interesting figures in Ben Brewing. Uh, two weeks ago, we talked to Gary Fish at Deschutes, uh, founder of Deschutes. Uh, a week ago, we talked uh, to Larry Sador, uh, owner and founder of uh, Crux Brewing. Yep. And today, uh, we're going to talk to... Uh, Tony Lawrence. <laughs> I didn't expect you to throw that to me. Uh, Tony Lawrence of Boneyard Brewing, uh, which is one of the more interesting breweries in town. It is an all-draft brewery, which is, those things are really rare in the world these yeah, days. Yeah, it's always been kind of an enigma to me, and now I kind of understand why. Yeah. Because you don't find it anywhere unless you're in a bar and there's a tap handle. Yeah. Uh, so we'll talk, we'll, talk, we'll talk more about that, but that's just extraordinary. Like, who now does we, that? And it's a pretty darn big brewery, 30,000 barrels. Yeah. I mean, so they, that's, they, a lot of, that's a lot of kegs. Yeah, and it's that's, also it's, it's actually sixty thousand kegs. So, <laughs> as it happens, but there you go. <laughs> and then, uh, and then the other thing that's interesting about it is it's still riding a flagship beer. Yeah, uh, uh, Boneyard RPM has been like one of the fave beers in the Oregon brewing scene for almost a decade. So long. Yeah, and what kind of brewer, beer has that longevity? Very, no, very few. No other beer. I'll yeah. tell you right now. And, <laughs> which is a testament not only to the beer but also just to sort of something special in the water at Boneyard. So we'll talk about what makes it special. And it is really unique and interesting. Yeah. It may have something to do with the guy we're about to speak to. Yeah. Who is unique and interesting himself. So uh, let's not step on <laughs> on Tony's uh, glory here. Let's uh, flip it to the, to the interview and then we can um, chat about him and his brewery at the end. All right. Let's see you on the other side. Okay. All right. We are here uh, with Tony Lawrence in Bend, Oregon at the second or third facility of Boneyard Brewing. We call this Brew 2. Brew 2. Se- right. Second production facility. <laughs> uh, and uh, I think a lot of people in the Northwest are familiar with Boneyard, but maybe people outside are not, because you're a, kind of an unusual brewery. 
in that you're all draft only. So uh, bottles are not making their way out to other far-flung regions. So one of the reasons we wanted to talk to you is because you do have a really different approach to making beer. But before we get to that, why don't you tell us a little bit about your background and what you were doing before Boneyard and, and how and we can move into how you got into Boneyard. Amazing. Give it a shot. Uh, it all kind of really started, what, what young man doesn't enjoy beer? So when we were young, we were drinking imports and then found Sierra Nevada. And I was down in Southern California. Um, but I, as a, as a young snowboarder, got me to Bend, Oregon. I ended up hooking up with some guys that um, worked at Deschutes Brewery Pub and uh, befriending them. So that turns into some pints of ale here and there. <laughs> and then I was fortunate to get a job at Deschutes Brewery in the kitchen. Um, became good friends with John Harris, infamous brewmaster, period, or in the Northwest, yeah. and a very personal mentor of mine, currently uh, founder of Brewmaster Decliptic right. in Portland, Oregon. Um, John and I would sit around after work and talk about beer and snowboarding. He was interested in snowboarding and I was interested in beer, and um, one day he offered me a job to start washing his kegs. Of course I took him up on that. It was Deschutes Brewery, 1989. I'm hanging out with John Harris, Gary Fish and crew, and uh, I just found a great company and a great opportunity. And I worked at Deschutes from 89 to 2002. I was there for about 12 year plus years. Mm-hmm. Saw a lot of growth from the 10 barrel brew house and a thousand or two, one or 2,000 barrels up to the 50 barrel brew house. So I think when I left, we did like 120,000 barrels. So very much a production brewing background. Um, got started at a great place, uh, at a great era, and did 12 years production brewing. Uh, um, you know, Black Bee Porter, Mirror Pond Pale Ale, Jubal Ale, you get the idea. Yeah, and when you were there, you were uh, did what? What? What all did you do at the shoot? Sure, uh, I was at the original location when I started washing kegs. Uh, then you know that turned to filling kegs and cleaning, cellaring responsibilities, then closing shift in the brew house. And then when the production brewery, fifty barrel brewery, really started getting caught up to speed, I was moved over and and you know so uh, essentially a lot of my time I was shift brewer. You know I was kind of senior shift brewer. I'd been around for a long time, and where a lot of brewers came and left. Um, so it's again just an amazing ride to be um, with them from such a little barrelage to such a large barrelage over a short period of time is a lot of who I am as a brewer and sort of my my procedural aspect to being on the floor and, and producing beer not necessarily artisanal side we'll get there later maybe right uh, I, I'd left uh, Deschutes in fall of 2002 and went down to Phoenix took an opportunity whichever you young brewers kind of looking for, at least I thought so, or believed to be so, which was that Shoots was amazing, but I was a part of a, a huge machine. Right. To really express my aspect as a young brewer um, wasn't necessarily possible there. So I took a job in Phoenix at a brewery called Rio Salado, hmm. where I was now the head brewer, or uh, really the brewer in charge. Tim Gossick was the owner and true brewmaster. Right? You know, I ran the floor. Mm-hmm. Um, we made German-style lagers and ales, so that was a lot of fun to go from... Uh, English ales to German style, so we made Pilsner's, Weiss, Kolsch, Mertzen, um, and Pilsner, and brews like that. Mm-hmm. But the, the the deal with there was to go try and find a job where I could really express myself as a young brewer on the scene. Um, that lasted for a couple of years. The timing for that brewery in that market, craft beer in, in early 2000s in Phoenix just wasn't ready for what we were trying to do. Yeah. That closed up shop. I ended up at Firestone Walker for 365 days. Oh, um, wow. I was looking for employment back in California, where I'm from, in the brewing industry, when I was passing through Paso Robles, some good friends of Matt Brindelson, and uh, he goes, 
why haven't you hit me up for a job? I was up <laughs> in Lagunitas, I was in San Francisco Barrier. I'm like, I just don't know if I want to be in Paso Robles. But turns out I took the job. Uh, I, I am from the 805 Central California, and Paso Robles, Paso is an amazing place. Took a job for a year with Firestone. And the reason it was a year because it was a great opportunity. Matt, Firestone, I mean, the highest of respect and standards uh, they, had, they adhere to from all aspects um, of production and, and, and brewing, artisanal science, whatever. So, but my job description there was to co-manage the packaging line. Uh-huh. And, you know, I'd run packaging lines, but I was a brewer. Right. Um, and um, so, after a year of running the packaging line, I, I just wasn't the right gig for me. There's some more insights into that, but not really for this story. Uh, <laughs> so I moved on. And it was interesting timing for me because also I'd, I'd kind of, you know, I'd probably in my mid-30s. And it was just time for me to kind of branch off on my own to figure out who I am. Um, I knew I probably would not necessarily um, of the long-term mentality to be employed by one employer. I'm more risky than that. So I made up Brutal Industries, we're telling you about, where I kind of ended up being able to broker some equipment and, and sell, uh, sell and install equipment around the country and sometimes the world. So I did that for the next five or seven years. Uh, you know, lived off a credit card to get that going. Mm-hmm. Had a lot of fun doing it, but living on the road and every job being one off is very difficult for me. You know, to engineer, install every job one off. Um, why I was good at that stuff, it wasn't necessarily my trade. So I made it work for a while. And this will actually be a fun intro. And that's how we kind of got to Boneyard. Yeah. Is during these travels, I made a lot of connections, learned a lot more about myself, about building breweries and doing things. And I collected a lot of random miscellaneous brewing equipment along the way um, from other people's boneyards. And I'd ship that stuff home for three or four years, reconfigure it in my garage with the hopes that one day I can launch my own brewery. And eventually that's exactly what happened. I rented a 2,000 square foot warehouse from a friend that had a concrete business, started moving my five barrel brew house into that address. Um, and while installing that System which took a while, it's just me on the weekends, kind of that type of setup, you know. No, I loaned from my mom for ten thousand dollars. Um, um, I got a 20 barrel brew house from Nick Floyd. Nick Floyd, most people don't know, is a silent partner with me on this project. Um, of the three Floyds, uh, so we got to work, we got lucky, got a 20 barrel brew house installed and opened the brewery in 2010, um, and just started making draft beer. I think, uh, a lot of you probably know, we used to pretty much draft only brewery, hop forward IPAs. That's kind of been our signature. It's what I like to drink. It's like what I like to make, so go figure. Right. Um, and that's kind of got yeah. us to about nine years ago. Right, so we, we just walked through your production brewery here, and I, I thought uh, you have the original brewery, uh, the 20 barrel brewery, which was the Boneyard. So for people who don't know, the bone the Boneyard is the, the equipment that isn't ready to completely be scrapped, but isn't mm, still in use. So, uh, and when you have a big uh, industrial facility, you're gonna have you're gonna have stuff that falls into that category. And so you you were able to gather that stuff together. I assumed when we got here that this thing was gonna be not boneyardy, right? It was gonna be uh, you're stepping up, and so now you buy an off-the-shelf system. But that's not really what happened. No, I mean. A couple of things. I like like I like tinkering with stuff. Sort of like uh, who doesn't like a really cool car, a rat rod, for instance. And you know, I kind of approach my brew house the same way. I, I, I love to be creative and sourcing it and uh, think outside the box, uh, not just for financial concerns, but I mean, no doubt that was a big part of it. Um, and uh, put it back together, and, and if it breaks down, you know how to fix it because you're the one that built it. And uh, I just really enjoyed that stuff. But it was just that 
union that 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 that, that organic way. I mean, I he didn't use didn't have equity really and partners, and it kept the partnership small and not over leveraged and it just that's who I am yeah so tell us about the brewery you have here it's kind of a historic brewery kind of a cool thing uh, I did not know about this yeah and actually I haven't said this in a minute because I was working with an engineer to to mimic a uh, this, this this four vessel brew house in Europe it's called a combi cube and I was going that direction and the engineering was taking a long time I wasn't sure if I had the financing but we we're working on it and um, when um, I found a used brew house for sale of 50 barrel, which it, in, in, you know, there wasn't that many used 50 barrel systems out there. Right. And it was Burt Grant's old brew house. So he was, when they decommissioned Yakima Brewing Company, who I don't know the year, I do apologize. Um, it was sold to a company in Mexico, in, in, in Mexicali, huh. where they make that beer, Chupacabra. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, they were gonna build a brew house in Calexico with this equipment that we're talking about. And it came up for sale, I knew the broker, because I was doing that stuff previous. So I went down there and looked at it. So it was on the ground, it was in the West Coast, it was cheap, I bought it and we brought it home. Gotcha. And uh, so it was Burt Grant's original brew house. It was never commissioned in Calexico, it just sat there for 12 years before I brought it back to Northwest. That's really cool. Yeah. For, and, and for folks who don't know, uh, Burt Grant was a pioneer and set up the first brew pub uh, post-prohibition in the United States. So that, that, that brew house is a piece of brewing history, which I did not know. It was pretty cool. And like I mentioned to you, the, we used most of the equipment, but we, we did replace the brew kettle, which is a beautiful old copper-clad brew kettle for a new stainless steel steam-fired model. And everything is trending slowly, but it certainly seems to me and my team that um, that brew kettle that we pulled, we decommissioned is headed off to the Smithsonian for the American Craft Beer Exhibit. That's really cool. Yeah, that's really cool. It's, it seems appropriate. I hope they do that. That's that's a brewery, a piece of brewing equipment they should have. So uh, it, in 2010, uh, the Pacific Northwest was going through, from somewhere between 2005 and 2012, we were going through a transition away from more bitter beers to more uh flavorful aromatic beers. And I think Ninkasi probably had the first iteration of that with Total Domination, kind of a modern IPA. Your beer, RPM, uh, did it, was that one of your first beers? Did it debut in 2010? Um, no, actually I didn't even have an IPA when we originally launched, no. Wow. Yeah, <laughs> but you know, as a lifelong brewer, and a lot of what me and my friends brewing colleagues and peers drink or, or lower ABV things or, or beers that are kind of lower ABV but also satisfy those receptors for high hops. So my flagship was Bonafide Pale Ale, which basically tastes like an IPA. It's the ABV of a pale ale. Mm -hmm. But eventually something had to happen because it seemed like to me if it doesn't say IPA on the chalkboard or on the beer menu, you just not a good business plan. So we made an IPA, thus uh, RPM was born. Yeah, and that beer I think was uh, one of the most important beers in in the evolution of the Northwest palate. Thank uh, you. Yeah, oh, it totally was. I mean, it was everywhere in Portland, and you've already told us that uh, it's still one of the most popular taps here in Bend. Um, it, I think it shifted. It went, it went away from the aggressivity that had characterized IPAs to a more soft palate, a more approachable palate that really showcased the flavor and aroma of hops. Was that just a beer you, you, where did that beer come from? It is kind of important and it's always interesting to me to hear how people come up with these kinds of beers. Yeah, you know, um, as a brewer, as a consumer, as a businessman, you know, I'm always evolving. Um, and it's funny what you hear on the internet or through passing about, you know, the, 
the four phases of RPM or something. I completely disagree. Now, that being said, when we got started brewing, some of our equipment or some of our practices were a little more rude and crude than they are today. So <laughs> we were able to you know hone in on some of those things through the years, which will just, that's the natural evolution of processing. Sure. Um, but there was one main um, era where we did change the beer. And so originally, I mean, who are you, a lot of what I was trying to create are the, the beers and the people I'm influenced by. Um, a lot of, um, for the, my hoppy beers or RPM and specifically, I studied some of those, what those beers from those people. Um, they clearly were um, Vinny at Russian River with Pliny, uh-huh. Matt with Union Jack, and the Three Floyds Boys. I tried to take all those things and digest them and, and create my own version of all that. Mm-hmm. And it just so happens that that was about 7.5 ABV. Mm-hmm. But after a few years of that, I just, you know, Hot Venom was at 10 and RPM was at 7.5. Over some number of years, I felt like the beers would just be better, closer to six and three quarters, seven and, uh, for the RPM ABV, mm-hmm. and the double IPA closer to nine. So I made a clear shift from a little bit to a little bit lower ABV along the journey somewhere. Other than that, you know, other than processing and, and stuff like that, uh, we haven't really tried to do anything to it. Yeah. Uh, you are a largely, I can't, we can no longer, we're about to explain why you're no longer an entirely draft brewery, but you are brewing something on the order of 30,000 barrels of beer, and, and nearly all of that is draft. Uh, Patrick and I are pretty fascinated in how that happened. It's a really un- to get to be that size all on draft is really unusual. A lot of my closest friends are pretty jealous because it's <laughs> much, you know, but it, it's inverted. I get jealous too when I go to the market and I see the the um, the end caps with all my buddies' breweries and you know and and then I get pretty jealous. But they're but they're jealous of me that I don't have huge teams of people on packaging lines and all the associated headaches that come along with that much packaging. But how we got there was just again another you know I wouldn't say it was. It was just our own misfit way of doing it. As fast as we could grow the, the brand by annual capacity through adding fermenters or buying kegs, the RPM just took off. It was good timing. It was a good brand, a good beer. And, and so we were always just sold out. That's pretty much the deal. Um, we were supposed to be a, a 16-ounce can packaging brewery. Here's a mock-up of an old can from like eight years ago that I had nice. from a can company um, but again as soon as the, we just filled up the buildings with fermenters and kegs and and looked back and here we are 30,000 barrels and what have you um, which is we just got here our own unique way and that's how it is um, yeah it doesn't really seem like it's a replicable model uh, I, you can't really tell someone else so what you should do is become a 30,000 barrel all draft brewery yeah, timing was good I, I'm not <laughs> sure um, it just it was our pathway that chose us and uh um, we've looked at some partnerships along the way. Uh, of course, I'd like to see some package out there just for my own ego more than any other financial concerns or maybe for the consumer to, um, to have more access to it for their backyard barbecues and things. But, you know, also what happened to the, the rise of the growler stores, right? I, which originally I didn't like. I don't like re- people repackaging my product right. and then putting it in their warm car and <laughs> shipping it out to Idaho <laughs> and then pulling it back out. Look what I have. Yeah. Um, so... But it, it also worked really well for us. The growler stores are one of our biggest customers, and they got the, my beer or these beers into backyard barbecues and places where we didn't have access to originally. So uh, these things just came into place, and it's just where we're at. Yeah. Uh, when we, wa- we just, before we started this podcast, we did a 
tour of this brewery, and we walked in, uh, we saw four things we were not expecting to see, four big fooders. <laughs> and it turns out you have an entire, so most of the people who know your brewery uh, casually know you as an IPA house, and uh, these fooders are kind of surprising. So you've got another project going on here. Sure do. Um, you know, the, 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 the interests professionally or personally as a brewer are always evolving. And, you know, uh, I just was really f fascinated with lambics, Belgian-style lambics. And so I always knew, even though when we were two or three years in, that at some point in the future we would diversify a little bit into some sort of mixed fermentation type stuff. Um, and, and so five years ago, we started working on that. And that's how long this, for us, that mixed fermentation program came, took to come to life. So yeah, we bought four 60 hectoliter fooders. Kind of a funny story there, or maybe I'm talking too much, but I found, <laughs> I, I knew I wanted to do a mixed fermentation program, but I, you know, 200 liter barrels are just, they're just not exciting for me. Uh -huh. And then I found some fooders for sale in the in Sonoma, and so I, I bought one just to force the issue for myself to, that would be the catalyst to take a thought process and morph it into a physical process, so buy a fooder. And then, so I, I cut a deal with a broker on one fooder. I had no program or nowhere to put it. <laughs> and then I went to lunch and I came back, I was all excited, I got a fooder. And I called the broker back up, I'm like, I, I, I need one more. If you're going to have one, why not have two? <laughs> so th that was cool. Now I got two. Um, I woke up in the morning and I was shaking and I called her back up and I was like, you got one more? Because actually the, the previous afternoon she said she still had one in inventory left to sell. So you must, do you still have that one? She said, yep, I've got it. And I said, I'll take it. And she goes, I tell you what, I've got a customer backing out on one right now. She's like, you buy four of them, I'll cover the freight from France. So I went literally in 24 hours to one to four fooders, <laughs> and they went on the high seas. So that forced the issue. They sat around here for, embarrassingly enough, for six months or something like that before we could actually develop a program. Where are we going to put it? How are we going to staff it? Get the things all cleaned up and get them ready for what, you know, what we're going to make. You know, create a lambic recipe, create a Flanders recipe, figure out what wild yeast and bacteria and the different things we're going to use to try and emulate the beers that we're fascinated by. And how did you do that? How did you come up with that stuff? Um, well, love, love my job. So we went out there and bought every beer we could find and tried to, again, uh, I, I borrowed hop things from my brewers out west in America and I started looking at Belgian beers and tried to figure out which ones I like to try to attempt to emulate. Um, we made some some recipes, put them in the fooders, and uh, a couple years later, we had a decent beer. Okay. Um, we're using mixtures of different Brettanomyces and wild yeast and French oak fooders. It's 60 hectoliter, 50 barrel, 1,500 gallons per fooder. Um, so right now, up there on the floor, we have three, uh, 300 barrels of um, our Oud Goose Lambic style. And same thing with the Flemish Flanders, kind of red-brown raspberry ale um, with Brett Dre, Brett Lambicus, Lactobacillus, um, whatever happened to be in that wood that came over from France. <laughs> and, and we actually have these beers in front of us, so which one should we, let's, let's drink these beers, and which one should we start with? Yeah, I'll uh, open this bottle, and uh, again, I think as you mentioned earlier, Jeff, uh, there's a draft-only brewery, and then we got interest in these Lambics. So now we actually have a package, uh, except it's, you know, these $20 a bottle, um, Lambic-style, fooder-aged, multiple-year process, painted glass, Cajun cork, 
Um, so I thought if we're don't if this only package we're going to have, let's go all in. Nice right? Package. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and, you, and and these are the kind of things that you actually have to. You, there's no such thing as a draft plan. Nope. You got to have these things in bottles, and you got to bottle condition them. And it's part of the whole process. So this is really the only way to do this. Yeah, you know we do do some draft lambic. I don't, I don't know. If, um, so we'll, we'll carbonate some up and, and ship it off to an, a brew fast or something like that. Right. But as you said, as you said, uh, I, I mean, when you get the secondary fermentation in the bottle, uh, that re-fermentation, and you know we're using um, champagne yeast and sugar. I kind of we have done some experiments with other Brett strains. Mm -hmm. um, I think you get better flavor development from re-fermentation bottle via Brett strain, but it's not as it's not such a sure thing. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, uh, but yes, uh, I love the extra, uh, the extra composition, the extra complexities from a bottle conditioned Lambic over yeah. our force carbonated Lambic. So this beer, is this beer available? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Most uh, bottle shops around the Northwest, I suppose. Um, and uh, I think I was telling you earlier, it's kind of an interesting story to me. We make a lot of hot beers. They're pretty darn good. They don't really show well in, uh, in uh, competition format. Right. Um, at least that's how I see it. Um, that's okay. We don't brew for competition, but we enter them. Mm -hmm. Anyhow, we've been entering this Lambic in NABA and other competitions. And, I mean, it keeps grabbing medals. I mean, <laughs> right next to Lindemans and stuff. Cheers. Cheers. Yes. And uh, just tell us the name of the beer. There you go. Yeah, so... The beer we're tasting right now is called Goose Cruise. Uh, so we took a play on the word goose and uh, you see G-O-O-Z-E. Um, and if you look at the logo and stuff, we'll talk more about that. It's kind of a play on uh, a booze cruise. Sure. <laughs> and so I just took a little play at the word since we're making Lambic style, goose and style. We just kind of really just took the opportunity to have a lot of fun with it. Right. So... Uh, we can we could talk about this beer, but I always love to hear what the brewer has to say when they taste the beer. What are you tasting? What do you want people to notice? Well, you know, I mean, my personal philosophy as a brewer here at Bungard is, you know, um, with most of the, well, we're talking about wild beer now, but um, every beer to me is really good. I'm not, I don't even really mean a, a boneyard beer as long as it meets some simple criteria. It's it's clean. It's well balanced. Um, it's free of off flavors, defects. Why you know. Um, you see a lot of really good beers, uh, 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 opportunity for really good beers to be made out there. We all have opportunity to get the same raw materials and, and make, create these really wild recipes. But if it's the process and the systems aren't checked, you don't end up with a good beer. So first of all, this beer, I think we did a really good job. It's just, yeah. it's just funky enough to be really interesting. The uh, it's got mixtures of organic acids, so there's a little layer of acids and complexity there. Mm -hmm. I personally would like to see a little bit more. Um, of, uh, um, effect from a more wild, more crazy Brett, you know, that barnyard thing. It's there. There's plenty of it. Um, it's not over the top. You don't have to look for it. It's not over the top. But I personally would like to see a little bit more. But maybe we'll get that on the next or second or third turn of the, turn of the fooders as the wild yeast bacteria population really settles into the nooks and crannies in the wood and just gives us and we get better at what we do with the base beer recipe and things. So I'm, I'm pretty happy. And do you use bacteria in this as well? Uh, uh, well, we don't know what's in the fooders, uh, but no, I mean, I mean, I told you the, f the origins of this 
wild yeast and bacteria. Um, I haven't sent it to the lab. It came from a parking lot in Stockton. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a long story. So it just always, we had it in smaller two, 200 liter barrels and we did that for a bunch of years. When it came time to put the 60 hectoliter fooders together, um, we took what was it had in house, was our own pro basically proprietary Stockton parking lot strain and put it to work. And so uh, there you have it. I don't know. Well, the reason I asked that is because um, there's a ton of esters in it, and yeah. Brettanomyces will convert acids into esters, and so mm, I was wondering okay. if perhaps they, there was some lactic acid in there that it was converting. Because it's really, it has, I think, the, the things that I'm noticing are, uh, it has a nice balanced acidity, it's quite effervescent, which is characteristic of style, sort of the champagne yeah. kind of characteristic mm -hmm. you want, uh, and then it has that just rich, rich fruitiness. Yeah. People think there's... Um, you know, there's fruit in there. A lot of times I'm at the brew fest and people are like, whoa, is that a peach exactly. or a nectarine? It's yeah. really peachy. Yeah. It is really peachy. Yeah. Yeah, peach, maybe apricot, nectarine somewhere in there. It's really nice. It's very complex, but not, it doesn't clobber you with any wine. Yeah. Um, yeah, I rather enjoy it. Mm. And again, uh, especially after pretty much close to five years of working on this to get this bottle on the table and share it here with you today. Yeah, yeah it's not a fast thing, is it? <laughs> yeah, and, and contrast that with the process that you, you told us you have a particular process for your regular ales. Sure, uh, everyone knows there's lagers, uh, there's wild yeast, uh, bacteria, there's um, uh, you know, our house ale yeast, all digest, carbohydrates derived from, you know, I'm talking just a quick fermentation thing, could be dihydro, uh, digestion of carbohydrates from grapes or barley, um, by, you know, the different yeast opportunities or what have you. So anyhow, uh, to get back to your question, here at Boneyard, it's pretty much a 14-day cycle for our IPAs. So uh, brew day being zero, and 14 days later, um, the fermentation vat being emptied in, into a keg. Um, day five, we dry hop. Day nine, we crash the temperature. Day 10, we biofine and carbonate. That's sort of the clarification process and carbonation process. Um, day 11, 12, 13, we're usually at 35 degrees Fahrenheit, and it's sort of the clarification stage and it, maturation, I suppose, and it goes to keg on day 14, two-week cycle. Um, I think I probably could make a little bit tastier beer on a 17-day cycle, staying on the dry hops a couple days longer and stuff, but we have a business to run, and so 14 days just seems to work out well for us. Uh-huh. So, I mean, it's interesting to contrast these two approaches. One is, you know... Predictable, <laughs> short-term, this is unpredictable, and it takes forever to make these beers. It's a beautiful career being a brewer. <laughs> Keeps it interesting, right? Yeah. And uh, you get to travel around Belgium looking for these beers, uh, chasing down your, 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 your goals and the things you aspire to be. Is there a particular version of one of the classic uh, Belgian Lambics or uh, American versions that you kind of thought of when you were making this, or did you think we like these different qualities from these different beers and we're going to shoot for this or did you just say this is a wild crap shoot and we'll, we'll try it and see what happens pretty much the lotter <laughs> I mean you know you, you can read the books and you know I used 30% unmalted wheat and for this reason or um, uh, but we didn't go around culture up different um, you know go buy all the bottles and culture them up and do all the stuff like that we just took the books took, took a shot at it and here, here we are pretty much yeah I mean clearly I brought the I bought the Stockton parking lot strain of Ian for the, for the recipe, so <laughs> cheers Steve out to Murray. <laughs> that was very nice. <laughs>
So yeah. you yeah. Uh, you talked to us earlier about um, uh, just growing to keep up with the demand for your kegs, and one reason why you stay an all keg brewery. Uh, but you also talked about sort of taking a pause on the uh, taking your foot off the accelerator. Do you want to talk to us about that a little bit? Yeah, I, I, I think if you're not picking up on a common theme from me is is you know sure we come to work each day prepared to work, work hard, have a vision of the future, but also remain flexible, you know, light on our feet and, and, and poised to change on a, on a whim. I mean, the boardroom here for a lot of years is Clay and I, and, and it's to some degree Melody. Um, and uh, so we we could remain really quick to adapt. Um, that helped us grow really quick, but also when we saw some markers out in the space in our, you know, in our industry, we kind of got our little thought bubbles up in there. It's like, well, things are changing out there. Mm-hmm. Changes, in, in, you know, it's going to happen. doesn't mean it's good or bad. And uh, I saw it just kind of looking too good to be true out there. For so, You know, I, I just felt like people were over-leveraged, over-funded, mm-hmm. and it just didn't, didn't look like it was going to end up well for a lot of people. So we always stayed, you know, um, well, just the opposite of that. We're always pretty solvent and taking a very slow growth curve. And instead of diving in, doubling down when everybody seemed to be doubling down, we just stopped. And, uh, and that's a little bit because, again, we were in a very comfortable spot. We were brewing two or three brews a day, five days a week. And that's that's kind of how we want to be. We don't want to brew seven days a week, 24 hours a day. And, and a couple things, other factors, as I mentioned to you, you know, the cubic feet in the building were starting to get filled out. So, okay, if we're going to keep growing, well, then we got to push a wall out and build a new part of the building. Um, if we're going to keep growing, um, the space is getting really crowded, but okay, we could probably compete with that. That's okay. But then, you know, does that mean emerging markets? Okay, let's go to Boise. Okay, if, if we're new emerging markets, well, we need new sales, you know, for us out there. There's just so many factors that we decided to sort of just let off the gas pedal. And as I said to you, it was really healthy for us. Instead of constantly trying to feed the machine to grow, we took a different approach, was to look inward and look at our company culture, look at... Um, Growth can come through efficiencies or just better understandings of how your operations look, better QA, QC, better insurance. Um, so we just kind of just stopped when everybody else was doubling down. Um, that being said, it seems, I, you know, when we made those decisions, I didn't know what I'm about to tell you was going to happen. But, you know, somewhere along the way, well, we decided to build a, brew, a pub, not a brew pub. Right. So, um, I mean, that's... You know, there's some growth there um, for the brand. So we have a big restaurant now and a pub in, in Bend, and uh, that took a year and a half to build. And I'm pretty good at purchasing, I'm pretty good at building, but I'm not a restaurateur. I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. so anyhow, we're figuring that out. Um, and somewhere along the process of building the pub, as I was telling you guys earlier, we have now launched another non-alcoholic line of drinks. So we're calling them elixirs. We got a lemon ginger elixir, and we infuse these things with CBD. We've got passion fruit, passion fruit orange turmeric. We've got a king cola, and the, the catalyst for that was is we we're building the pub, and you know, and it seems like to me that a good craft beer pub there's going to be a, a ginger ale or a, a cream ale or a root beer. Right. So we're posturing all these different considerations. But we went to our own boneyard, grabbed a couple of 40 barrel fermenters and got another warehouse and said, well, if we're going to do this, why do 
30 gallons at a time. Okay. And uh, we had a really, a really good guy on the team that wanted to lead up this side project. So we got another warehouse. We actually have a canning line, which is strange because Boneyard Beer doesn't even have a canning line. <laughs> Boneyard Elixir does. So we're spinning off these uh, brands down there, and we're having a lot of fun with it. Um, I would actually rather enjoy them all by themselves or maybe with a splash of vodka in them. And uh, we're going to give it a shot. Yeah, and they're available at the pub? They're available at the pub. They're in distribution all around Oregon and uh, huh. not currently in Washington because when you're playing in the CBD space, yeah. it's a little volatile. Yes. But uh, we're willing to take that risk. Um, we, again, are just chasing our dreams and being ourselves and let the chips fall where they may. Yeah. Should we try this other beer? Was this yeah. Or were you, did you pull that bottle out just to tease us or we get to taste it? <laughs> I can't wait. I don't get um, that many excuses to open these up. I don't have any at home. Well, you're welcome. <laughs> We're Actually, happy to offer you an excuse. I was super embarrassed a couple weeks ago. You were down at Firestone as well as myself. Yeah, I didn't, and, somehow uh, I didn't know Boneyard was there. I totally missed yeah, it. Yeah, for a long time. We're the only brewery from the Northwest, fortunate to be on the invite list. I think a Gigantic is now there, and uh, I think it was Ecliptic there this year. No, Freem was. Oh, Freem, yeah. I mean, yeah. And, uh, well, this is why, going back to Frame Class Act, I mean, the Frame guys are just amazing to watch them do their thing. I mean, the, the beers, the people, the branding, big, big, big fan. Yeah. Um, so I show up at a little pre-warmer party at Brindleson's house, and Frame is there, Josh is there. And this goes back to bottom about to open right now. So I did a really good job at provisioning for the road trip. We drove down with the boys. I've got the jerky, the chips, and <laughs> coconut waters, and all these different things. I forgot to bring beer. <laughs> and so we get to the party, and all my everybody's down there with all their, you know, putting ice buckets full of the beers. So I wish I'd brought some of these beers and put them in the ice buckets because there are lots of, lots of really tasty beverages there. Yeah, I mean, it's such a, I, I don't know, maybe people are more aware of what you're doing than I was, but it's really, it, it was really surprising. Of all the breweries to walk into and see Fooders, I was really surprised to see that. So I bet, I bet people would have loved to try these. You know, we we don't advertise much, we don't pound our chest much. Social media isn't our strength. We just go about our business and hope that people take notice at some point in time. And you know, after five years, we're finally putting some of these in the stores, and uh, no one really even rec. I mean, to be honest, I kind of screwed up. I mean, it doesn't really scream Boneyard. There's no. not like a big logo <laughs> or label on there. We probably could have took advantage of the fact that it's one of our one of our brands, and so the more catches your eye as you walk across the shelf, but uh, here we are. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> here you go. Sir. Pouring beer now. Yes. In our studio, we have a dedicated mic for this that picks up all the effervescence. Yeah, call, it's even got a name, Edwina. So we don't have Edwina here today, but uh, we'll try to get a lot of sound. So here we have our uh, approach, or uh, Attempt today. I uh, Flemish Flanders, uh, red brown. I sort of took what I knew, not much about both those styles of categories, and just decided to morph, morph from or merge them into one Tony version. Yeah. And um, and you added some fruit in this. Absolutely. It's evident. Bunch of, yeah, a bunch of raspberries. So um, these we have the four sixty heck fooders as we mentioned. Two of them are. 100 barrels or 120 hectoliters of goose. The other two are this this brand or this product. And I can tell you a little bit more about the specific approach on this than the goose because, as we spoke about on the on the, on the uh, goose cruise, that DNA, uh, wild yeast and bacteria, came from Stockton in a parking lot. Right. Here I worked with BSI, a supplier currently of most of our yeast. And we, do, we use Imperial. We use everybody. Mm -hmm. um, and I uh, produced the wart design. 
work composition, chose Brett Lambicus and Brett Dre for a lot of things that you read about in those. Thought that that'd be a nice blend to try and produce the flavors I was looking for that I read about for this style of beer and lactobacillus, and I put them in the fooder. Um, pitched them with raspberries a couple years later. I mean, this, this project took years. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was a blend of uh, those wild yeast and bacteria. We're definitely getting more of the, the barnyard here, a yeah. little, the, mm-hmm. the drier kind of finish mm-hmm. that you get from Brad. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, well, the, the, the yeast lab has a little bit better control over the Stockton parking lot. And um, <laughs> so I think the Brett Dre really kind of worked this down to some of the flavors that you're talking about. Yeah. And to be honest, as I was mentioned to you, I'm trying to get the Brett Dre and future generations of this product to take more of a lead role than the Lambicus. So we're kind of, I mean, I can't ever get the Lambicus out of the fooder, uh-huh. but when we re, when we introduce new wort, we're propping up Brett Dre and putting in there with it, trying to just let the Dre steal, steal the show. Right. Yeah, I mean, I, I really like the way fruit works with these beers because it, it strips away all the, the sugar and it just leaves the aromatics and flavor. Mm. So it's just the, it has such a fresh uh, raspberry aroma. Then yeah. you taste it, and it's and it and the raspberry is there, but it's not overwhelming. It, all these other flavors come in afterwards. Yeah. You know, I must say, um, I'm fairly proud, and I, I I don't really usually say things like that, but after all the years along for this project and the unknown variables and just some books or a, a small influence from a one trip to Belgium or something <laughs> like that to to the sum of all those considerations to sit here again today and it, it's pretty darn good yeah it's really good and are you going to just do these two or are you going to do different kinds of wild beers what's your plan there you know I've, I've had a lot of different considerations over the many years it took to get to where we're talking about today and I wanted to do two beers and do them really well kind of a European aspect uh, at least what I, what I thought just pick two do them really really well and be done with it um, that being said um, I do think there's some blend opportunities here um, from base beer recipes and stuff. For instance, we did Pesh, which was basically um, the Cruise Cruise base beer. We took a thousand liters of that and put it over another container with a bunch of peaches. So mm-hmm. that, there's a Pesh out there now. Um, and I do think, well, we, we could do it here. It's pretty funny. You take some 60 40 cut of both these and you end up with a whole new beer. Uh-huh. Um, but no. We're not working in any new brands or artwork or anything like that right now for the foreseeable future. So, um, yeah. again, I'm sitting on a couple hundred barrels of this stuff. I'm just trying to figure out how to get in the bottle because uh, we're generally short-staffed around here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hmm. Sorry, we're having dead air, but we're also just stopping and uh, savoring our beers. And you can't do that with your mouth open. Um, yeah, what else we got to talk about, guys? Well, I would love to hear what your reflections are. You've lived in Bend mostly through the entire craft period. We're out here. Uh, Bend has become this kind of weird place where there's 80,000 people or whatever and 25 breweries. And many of them, like your your brewery, are, are producing a fair amount of beer. I mean, the, num- the, pers- the, the barrels that are coming out of Bend are way, way, way more than any human in Bend can, can make them, <laughs> can drink them. So... Talk about what happened in Bend. Uh, it seems like it's kind of started with the shoots, but why is Bend like Bend is? I mean, I'll try and explain the best of my understanding. I mean, I think it attracts a similar type of 
person, for starters, whether you're a brewer or an athlete, just very creative people, adventurous people, entrepreneurs, risk takers. There's, there's a whole aspect of that. Of course, Deschutes was a great steward. Um, they made Bend and beer, uh, Bend famous for its beer. So, uh-huh. and you know, I think uh, as we ship or export our beer around the state or even other parts of the Northwest, you know, the, when it says Bend on there, either through the stewardship of Deschutes or just the people's own imagination of Bend, that helps propel it. I believe. I mean, no disrespect to any other cities around the Northwest, but Bend's a great spot. Um, um, when we launched in 2010, I believe we were brewery number seven, uh-huh. and you know the newspaper did an article on us, and they're like, "How are these guys ever going to survive?" <laughs> you know what I mean? um, but you can't worry about those things. So the economy was down. We were brewery number seven. The market wasn't necessarily hot. Timing is everything. Um, the market um, for the beers flavors, I think we are putting on the table. We are producing a little bit like you alluded to earlier, which is kind of the what I refer to as the newer platform of IPAs in the Northwest. Um, we put a pretty good one on the table at the right place, right time, with a kind of a, a rough and tumble brand compared to a lot of the branding that had been previously used in Northwest. And so I, I can't really explain why Ben has so many breweries. It worked out for us. Again, I think the timing was well. Um, the, the the brand and the and the flavors were pretty fresh. Um, I do think obviously you're starting to see some people suffering out there. We've seen a few breweries and Ben collapse over the last couple of years. Um, at least three or four that I can think of. Um, and I know a bunch of others are desperately trying to carve out a niche for them, but haven't quite succeeded yet. Mm-hmm. Um, I wish them the best. Um, um, you know, I, I, clearly there's a lot of tourism in Bend and, and beer-based tourism. And, and in fact, that's kind of what forced the cards for me to open a pub, which I famously said I never would. My background's production brewing. Um, just we had an ad on the radio. Um, eight years ago, which we don't do much advertising. We traded beer for free pre- you know, advertising on the radio. And, you know, it said something like, just beer, no burgers. And so that was me kind of saying, hey, we're focused on producing beer, beer only. That's it. That's what we do. We're going to do it really well. We're not going to delude ourselves with talking about other restaurant a- aspects. So, but here we are. Yeah. I've now got a big-ass restaurant, and, uh, <laughs> and uh, it's, a, it's a royal pain, but I'm really proud of it. And, uh, you know, most, even though it's a pain, it's, very proud because now when people come to Ben, they can come to our taste, I mean, our restaurant, and we have 15 beers or plus on tap, and people see that, wow, indeed, we make something other than RPM, including wilder mixed fermentation, lots of lagers, um, um, lots of crazy stouts, um, other barrel-aged brews. So uh, that's been the most fun part of the restaurant project for me. Uh, when we were walking around the brewery, I asked you about RPM and, and it being uh, such a popular beer and, and such, you know, in, I'm correct in saying that Bend, in Bend, it has a lot of loose tap handles around, like it's kind of a the city beer. Is that, is that accurate? Yeah. You know, with respect to my other peers and colleagues in the industry, I would say 100% accurate. It does seem, <laughs> it does seem to be the locals' favorite. Um, we have our magazine here, The Source, which is they do the best of readers poll every year. We're like five years running, you know, best beer in town. Yeah, I um, heard that from other people, not you, so I wasn't really uh, trying to, to, yeah, I, I, I think there's independent verification. And remember, you know, when I was talking to you guys about it earlier when doing the brewery tour, I, you know, I just think it's a really user-friendly beer. It's, it's consistent. It's well-made. It's just interesting enough. Um, um, and, and, you know, it's not too bitter. It's not too hoppy. It's not too sweet. It's not too dry. It's just this 
awesome intersection that people just come back to it over and over. Mm -hmm. um, it's never going to win an IPA competition. It's not that big of an IPA. Um, so I'm interested, the, you know, you were just talking about the market's very crowded now, and uh, one thing that we've been talking about a lot uh, on the podcast and, and, and since we've been at Bend is the promiscuity of the customer. They always want something new. Mm. How do you feel about having... It's great to have a, a beer that's been popular for nearly a decade. Uh, you know, flagships are kind of other people are their flagships are dying, and they have to produce one-offs constantly. How are you feeling about your position in the market, and uh, you know where you are with RPM and all that? How, how are you feel, looking looking at the beer industry going forward? How do you feel about things? Um. Well, it's, we're pretty weighted to, with RPM as it keeps the, you know, pays the bills, keeps the employees employed, um, and it definitely keeps me up, me up, keeps me up at night, um, meaning, I mean, look at some of the other great brands that are hitting the streets with a lot of great beers and all the one-off stuff, but yes, we've got the static tap handle with this IPA, and I don't see that ending anytime soon for us, not to be cocky, but we look at this, we think about it, we talk about it, we, you know, um, we're still putting a really good beer on the table, the consumer knows our brand, and they're coming back to it. That being said, is you know, I, I it'd be unrealistic f for me to not understand that you know this brand hitting ten years old, the, di the ever di the changing dynamics of the market space and the consumer's interest to continue to have such success with this beer um, sixty months from now. I just, to be honest, I, I but I have my ten year window, so you know that's. I'm pretty lucky right yeah. there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, people release beers today that are really popular, really successful, great beers, and they get two or three years, and then they just fade, you know? They just fall off the map. So it is a really unusual story. Everything about Boneyard seems to me an unusual story. Uh, well, thank you. Uh, <laughs> uh, but, you know, a little bit when we were talking about um, maybe... 36 months ago, pulling off the gas pedal. This was already in my in our playbook, our little vision that, you know, we're going to be around 10 years with this thing, and if we squeeze 10 to 15 out of it, well, that's amazing. It's an amazing beer. We should get that longevity out of the brand and the beer. That being said, again, I mean, it's statistically, you're not going to get another 120 months out of this thing. Right. Um, so doubling down financially from an investment strategy didn't make any sense either going back to just one more, one more small part of our formula that we put together a few years ago whether we keep going or be comfortable or happy with what we've already done yeah, yeah. Um, you have any parting questions? no I think we covered the whole well yeah. thank you so much Tony Lawrence at Boneyard Brewing uh, we are I think this will be the last of our podcast so uh, we feel I'm feeling like maybe we have a beginning to have a sense of uh, Ben Brewing, what 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 Brewing Ben is like. So thank you for hosting us and showing what's going on. Well, I appreciate the inquiry to come chat with us and see what we do. As you said, there's about 30 breweries over here, so you saw three or four, and I'm one of the three or four, so we made the top cut. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We gotta we gotta talk to the guy who made our RPM. That's right. <laughs> All right, cheers. All right, guys, amazing. Thank you. So thank you very much to uh, Tony for sitting down and spending time with us. I have to sort of set the scene. He's in an area uh, with, as we mentioned in earlier podcasts, sort of uh, in a part of Bend that has a whole bunch of different breweries around. And he's kind of an industrial district with a bunch of warehouses where people have set up breweries inside. 
Uh, and, and you kind of drive it up thinking, okay, here we go again. Yeah. But suddenly you start seeing these indications that things aren't quite the same here. There was this big giant copper kettle uh, in the parking lot. Just <laughs> and it sit, looks like a teapot. Just in there. That's what my son said. It looks like a tea kettle. Uh, next to it is this uh, crazy old station wagon with like four doors. It's like triple length station yeah, it's wagon. Like three miles long. With a big boneyard logo on the side. And then there's this crazy old snow plow that they <laughs> use to plow the driveway and stuff uh, sitting there. And then you enter and suddenly you're, uh, you're surrounded by old uh, pinball video game equipment and motorcycles. Yeah, motorcycles everywhere. Motorcycles everywhere. Just old sort of antique, uh, interesting motorcycles. And you realize this isn't going to be a typical experience yeah uh and then tony uh sort of uh wanders up and he's in flip-flops and shorts and uh super affable nice guy uh has actually listened to the podcast right he was he was listening to it before we came so he would kind of get a sense of what our deal was yeah most people most people start by saying uh yeah i don't have any idea what podcast is but you know let's talk (laughs) or or, oh uh, yeah i listen to podcasts but not yours (laughs) Yeah, Um, yeah we get that a lot so anyways, let's, let's, let's talk about Boneyard. So Boneyard is super interesting. He talked about sort of the origins. Uh, uh, the name now makes sense. Uh-huh. He, he assembled it through parts. But more than that, I mean, just everything about the brew to me uh, suggests that it is very much part of his sort of character and ethos. Like he hand-built the whole brewery. It's very manual. Yeah, you know... Uh, Motor motorheads, gearheads, those kind of guys really love to get un, under stuff and tinker. And you felt that way in the brewery. Um, it's a it's a manual brewery. There's a lot of levers. Uh, it's you know every uh, piece of equipment is salvaged from somewhere else. Yeah, and it's 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 designed for humans to manipulate it and uh, maintain it. And yeah. it's it's not there's nothing automated about it. There's a there is a computer screen, and the computer screen is only for recipes. Uh, you yeah, know, it's like not connected to the com, to the it's actual got equipment. Excel on it, and then, yeah, <laughs> that's, and that's it. Yeah, a lot of analog dials. So yeah. if you want to get the right temperature, you gotta you gotta watch the dial. Make sure you get it right. Uh, so it's very hands-on, and and uh, he doesn't want it any other way. He he's unapologetic about his brewery, where it comes from. He's not interested in getting a brand new, you know, uh, uh, prefab system. No, and and it seems like he's hired people who have his same kind of ethos. They're walking around, not not really in flip flops because they're actually at work, but you know, very mellow kind of. There's guys driving by and. Uh, uh, forklifts but yeah you know, really. it's a it's definitely a community like uh it really felt like uh, uh family's probably a little bit too strong but definitely a community like mm-hmm. the, like i think he's uh he values his relationship with his workers he values the culture of the place he talked about putting the brakes on growth because he didn't want to lose that and lose those values and i thought that's really impressive yeah and i really liked uh that he he, he it's 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 he's an interesting guy in that he comes across and I think we heard it in the the interview as a really sort of blue collar plain spoken guy you know like doesn't put on airs doesn't isn't fussy about anything and yet when you listen to him talk about his business and his equipment and his new projects you realize this is a really sharp guy yeah and and you have to be really and we should be really clear about this like everything about his brewery is like hand built tinkered together salvaged products. But everything about his beer is absolutely top-notch, first-rate. He's a stickler for quality, a stickler for consistency. And um, it looks casual, but it's actually quite intentional. Exactly, yeah. yeah. He, and and um, he's very forthright about it. But uh, so don't, it's easy to mistake, you know, a brewery that looks like that for sort of 
you know, being sort of amateurish with the beer, but not at all. No. Absolutely. Yeah, but it is old school. Like, uh, they have a big high lift that, that, uh, that lifts the, the brewers up to the top of the conditioning tanks where they dump in the hops <laughs> at the top. Yeah. Uh, a classic kind of uh, boneyard use of equipment. Not uh, You don't automate it, but you use equipment so that you can get your hands on it more. Yeah, yeah. That's, that was the thing my son remembered the, the most about. And, the, and all of the, the big uh, fermenters uh, had motorcycle uh, were named after different motorcycle brands and had the, motorcycle the brand stickers, yeah. yeah. <laughs> on them. So, you know, one yeah. was Husqvarna and one was, you know, Ducati. Ducati. <laughs> and your son uh, was really impressed after when he went away. He, he said, "That guy's cool." Yeah, he is a cool guy. Uh, he's got a great <laughs> uh, a great story, and I appreciate him uh, him uh, sharing that that with us. I want to talk a little bit, really quick, about about RPM. Yeah, because it's just an enigma. I mean, he, he brews a beer. It's an exceptional beer. It's, it's, it was ahead of its time and kind of set a template for a modern IPA that's a little less uh, big, but really super aromatic. Uh, and it just became, it was the beer in Bend. Yeah. And it's, I would say, instructive in some ways for people who are looking at, at making a, a, an IPA. It has really lush, saturated flavors, but they're not intense. And right. it's the kind of beer that people, a lot of people just go in and sit down and drink two or three RPMs. It's the kind of, it's a set, it's not session strength, but it is the kind of beer that you can drink over a session. And I think everybody tends to think that you want to go to for more intensity, more extreme kind of, uh, you know, more distinctive. Uh, but this shows that there are lessons in beer that have been true lessons for all time about the way people drink beer. Yeah. And that applies even to IPAs. And I think that's one reason this thing has been so durable is it has found a broad audience. It's it's the kind of beer you want to drink in uh, in, in multiples, and it always serves you well. Yeah. And those, the, not every IPA can say that. Yeah. So kudos to him for, uh, uh, for that beer. But he did catch lightning a little bit. I mean, he, he did. They spent yeah. almost no uh, money on brand branding, brand awareness. Uh, they, they, I think T-shirts are the brand. I think yeah. that's the brand strategy. I mean, they make their tap handles <laughs> in-house. They have a little, a little workshop where they tinker together these tap handles and stick yeah. stickers on the tap handles, and that's the brand. Yeah. Uh, so it's pretty remarkable. Like all these people obsessing about how they're gonna, you know, build the brand and do all this. And he basically just brewed some good beer and started sending it out. And then more and more and more and more demands came in, orders came in, and he just kept sending it out in kegs. And that's where he is. 30,000 <laughs> 30, barrels in kegs. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's remarkable. But he didn't just stumble into that. And that's the right. thing that was, was fascinating to me. It's like he didn't, this was not accidental. He, uh, he may not, he may not have all the trappings of a big corporate brewery, but he, uh, he has the deliberation of a person who knows what he's doing. Yeah. And then the little sideline he's got going on now, speaking of being a shrewd business person, he's got his little elixir brand, right? Like these little sodas, tonics, I don't know how, how you would describe them, but, uh, CBD infused, uh, sodas, tonics that um, he described as needing something other than beer to sell at the pub. When they they finally opened the pub, the pressure to open a pub just became too great. He 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 uh, he talked about his pub sort of it was a mix of pride and. Uh, anxiety almost. Yeah, like almost resignation. Like I kind of had to do it. I didn't want to do it. I'm not really excited about running a restaurant, but. You know, we're in Bend, and and now it's also sort of it's you know as 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 the tourist economy is such a big part of the Bend beer scene, you kind of need to meet the tourists and 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 uh, 
and promote your brand somehow. And so that's how he decided to do it. Yeah. All right. Well, that was great. Uh, we should uh, have a few words going out. Yeah. We should have a few words going out. So this was number three in a series of four uh, super special podcasts <laughs> uh, where we sit down with uh, key figures in the Ben Brink scene. So uh, there, there is one more to come uh, next week. So look out for it. Um, we will be talking uh, with the uh, creator, founder, brewer at Ale Apothecary. Paul Arney. Paul Arney. Yeah. Ale Apothecary. Yeah, it's tough to say. (laughs) When you're not prepared. Uh, Okay, so a few words going out. Please subscribe to us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, wherever you find our podcasts. Don't forget to rate us and review us. That helps people find the pod wherever they may be. Five stars, please. (laughs) We love to hear from you, so please send us your questions or comments to jeff at beervonablog.com, or you can visit us on social media. We now have our dedicated Twitter. It's at beervonapod. Jeff blogs at beervonaplog, and he tweets at beervonapod. And Patrick tweets at Beeronomics and, of course, at Beeronapod. All right. Well, until next week, uh, bye, Jeff. We, this is still, like four I, weeks in a row that yeah, we haven't I, had beer. We I'm still haven't. Getting we just, thirsty. And we keep going out with a fizzle. We haven't really figured out our, our when we don't have a beer to tink. So maybe maybe Will will uh, give us a fake uh, uh, tink. <laughs> All right. I'm going to handshake. <laughs> oh, good. It was good to see you. <laughs> <laughs> very, very nicely done. All right.